Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. Last year, people across the Sunshine State were stunned when Florida was ranked as the number five fishing state in the country. The findings were according to LawnLove.com, which compares the 50 states and the District of Columbia based on community interest, access to gear and bait shops, license affordability, and proximity to water sources among 22 total metrics. The 2022 rankings were recently released. Where did Florida land this year? We'll find out shortly after I welcome in this week's guest, Ed Killer of the Treasure Coast Newspapers and TCPalm.com. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper, and of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. Ed Killer has been reporting on all the wonders of Florida's East Atlantic Coast, Indian River Lagoon System, and Lake Okeechobee for three decades. Ed is part of a family tree that has been in the Fort Pierce area since 1895, so he knows Florida and he knows about fishing. Aside from the state fishing rankings, Ed and I will also discuss the effects of Hurricane Ian and what it has done to the state's boating and seafood industries, among other things. So let's get right to it. Ed, welcome back to the show and happy International Sawfish Day. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a momentous day uh, to, to celebrate the one of the one of the marine environment's most unique creatures um is the sawfish which is really kind of a cool thing it's one of those things that uh it's kind of like uh, the skunk ape in florida you know people people don't really you know only a rare number of people have seen them or encountered them but uh to the rest of us uh, it's still a myth but we hope to see one one day and and the way the numbers are going it looks like uh we're all going to have a better chance to see one eventually so um, the only one I've seen so far is up at uh, SeaWorld's uh, Aquarium up there in Orlando. The sawfish is kind of kind of neat because it's it's related to the ray and not so much the shark. And it can get up to about 21 feet long. Uh, the ones we have in Florida are called a small tooth sawfish, and they're a saltwater fish. So they live in like the Indian River Lagoon and Charlotte Harbor and Caloosahatchee River. They live through the 10,000 Islands and the Everglades. Those are places that uh, people can encounter them a lot. And sometimes the Keys, um, sometimes they'll, they'll run into them in the Bahamas. But we've had a we've had a bunch of sightings here this year in the St. Lucie River and Indian River Lagoon and just offshore Stewart, Florida here. So um, that's, a, that's a good sign. 
Um, the ones we see here on, on this coast over here on the east coast of Florida, most of them are adults. We don't see a lot of the juvenile fish. So scientists tend to think that the ones we see over here are they're just wandering around and, and feeding. Um, they're feeding on, on small bait fish and some things like that and sometimes crabs on the bottom. But they, um, the ones down in the Everglades, that's where the scientists think that there's a breeding population of them down there, or that's where they that's where they migrate at least to go uh, to to breed, and um, they actually give live birth to their young. So there was a, a a situation about three or four years ago where some scientists from Florida State University in Tallahassee were doing a research experiment in Bimini in the Bahamas, and they were they. Were, actually we're, we're planning on encountering a stawfish but the one that they encountered they caught it on a long line that they had set in in shallow water and it was uh pregnant and was would had started the process of actually giving birth to its young so that was kind of an interesting uh situation for them they got a lot of great photos of these baby sawfish being born live from the from the mother sawfish so that was kind of a cool thing and of course they were all tagged and released right away so it, it was uh good for all of them so um but yeah the sawfish is kind of a cool animal it's uh last thing i'm going to say about them they were um they're the first marine species of fish that was added to the uh, national endangered species list so they are considered to be endangered and uh, Florida has protections on them, like, and so does the. There are also federal protections. So, if you do catch one or encounter one, uh, do not take it out of the water. Uh, try to try to release it right away. If you can get a quick photo, uh, leave it in the water to get the photo. Um, but a lot of times, I can tell you this: it's hard to get a photo of a sawfish because they're so big that, uh, and a lot of times they're encountered at night, and so your lighting is is not going to be very good and. The, the animal's very big and it's hard to get it get a scale of it and stuff so it's um it'll be kind of an interesting uh situation but one last thing i'll say is check out tc palm because uh one of the most recent stories we have from earlier this summer was there's a a champion spear fisher we have who lives on the treasure coast her name is julie higgs and she was uh diving just offshore of stewart she was free dives so that means where you just take a breath of air and then you dive down to, to spear your fish. So she was free diving in about 40 feet of water and there was a huge ball of bait, like sardines. There was, you know, thousands of them were in this big ball right on this reef. And as she dove down and the, the, the bait ball started to move out of the way for her, she got video from her GoPro mounted on her, on her wetsuit there or on her spear gun. She got video of uh, two sawfish that were in the bait ball feeding. So it's kind of a cool video to, to check out. It's on tcpalm.com, so go go check it out. And that's that's all I would say for ha- for celebrating International Sawfish Day. <laughs> Way more than I was expecting on sawfish. Next year, I'll get you a cake for it, Ed. That's all right. We've got to have a big old sawfish cake next year. Would it be? Would it look like a sawfish, or would it have to taste like it? Yeah, we'd have to. It's that. Uh, I don't think the taste would go very far. So we have to make <laughs> it look like a sawfish. Well, there you go. I know that there's a lot of fancy bakers around town nowadays that I bet could do a great job on that. Yeah, it could be a. It could be a on the Cake Boss show or something. All right. Well, you know, in the intro, Ed, I also set up about the rankings for the state of Florida and fishing, and we're going to get to that in a minute. 
But I did want to get to one other serious topic with you before we get to the fun stuff. And that, you know, obviously you've been doing a ton of reporting recently on Hurricane Ian, the after effects of what it's done to all sorts of industries in Florida, boating, fishing, seafood. So we're going to start with the boating industry. And I'm not sure how they come up with such broad estimates, but I read one of your stories where you said between 40 and 70 billion dollars worth of boat losses were incurred during this storm and I, I know those those numbers they're they're just hard to comprehend so can you explain in simpler terms what did this storm do to Florida's boating industry well I think the main thing to to start with is uh, Florida Florida's home to about 1 million registered vessels that that happened uh, we, we topped the 1 million mark last year I think it was for the second time in Florida's history but um it, it, it had been building for years because um, the economic downturn back in 08, 09, that, 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 re, that resulted in a lot fewer people having boats. But two of the, hard, the hardest hit counties for Hurricane Ian are that Lee County and then Collier County and Charlotte County. Those are the adjacent counties there. Well, in those three counties, just Lee County alone, you've got 50,000 registered vessels and then you know add another you know 30,000 or so in the two adjacent counties that are that were there many of these boats were left in the marinas um you know people may have gone out there and uh, put some extra spring lines on 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 the, the boats uh, since i wrote the story I, I talked to somebody who uh said that they they had moved their boat into a marina on the uh on the safer side of the storm <laughs> that was their thinking at the time <laughs> not realizing that about they had about a 50 mile wide swath of uh, hurricane force winds coming at them um so in any case the hurricane track i think people had believed it was really going to go into the tampa bay area and that's sort of what a lot of national media were saying at first and then they started to shift the track you know farther uh south on the west coast of florida so you you've had this track where they started saying well maybe it's gonna maybe the hurricane Ian will come in at venice maybe it'll come in in sarasota maybe it'll come in in uh punta gorda you know so they were they were shifting that track south well by the time they said well it's probably going to come into fort myers there really wasn't a lot of time for people to move their boats so things like the shrimp boat fleet were, were left in place at the dock and um, other marinas were full and rack storage facilities were full out on Fort Myers Beach and, and some of the marinas there. And um, people just didn't move their boats. And next thing you know, they get hit with a 10 foot of storm surge. Now, I think the 40 to $70 billion estimate, I think, is for all property, uh, not just boats. But uh, the boat, the boating industry suffered a huge hit and a huge blow. Now, complicating this is the fact that there were already some uh, supply chain interruptions created by the pandemic. And so what, what you had is uh, you had, you've got a situation where um, you've got lots of, lots of manufacturers were already having trouble meeting um, their supply demands and, and getting uh, product out to dealers. So if you went to a boat dealer and you're looking for like a 20 foot bay boat or 24 foot, you know, bay boat, 
you're having to wait six months to a year, sometimes up to two years. We have a custom builder in, located in Stewart that actually they've got a two year waiting list for bay boats, um, which is just un- unconscionable, you know. But one of the big problems is that none of these manufacturers they're trying they're they're getting orders on boats so fast that they can't, that the motor suppliers like Mercury Marine, Yamaha Marine, Suzuki. These these motor suppliers are having a hard time meeting the demand for outboard motors for these uh, these you know flats boats, bay boats, central center consoles. Plus, you've got another complicating situation where we're making center consoles larger and larger. It used to be a thirty foot center console was a was a big boat. That was back in the mid nineties. Nowadays, it's nothing to put outboard motors on a on a fifty foot center console boat. Instead of that being a big sport fish with in, in inboard diesel motors, you've got it you know loaded up with like you know five outboard motors on the back. So so the demand for motors is really at an all time high. And then there's also a, a supply interruption for electronics, um, other pieces and parts, jack plates for the motors, trim tabs, uh, all of the accessories that go on boats, you know. Uh, one one manufacturer told me that every Monday morning what they do is they they have a meeting and they just they have to sit there and they decide or they they talk about what supplies they're not going to get this week and not what boats they're not going to be able to finish or ship out to the customers that week and you know that's a that's a heck of a thing to have to do every Monday morning so um, you take those two things and you combine them together and you've got basically a perfect storm for for problems in the boating industry going forward. Because we know the insurance rates are going to go up. They've already, you know, been at an all-time high for property insurance. But that property insurance extends not only to for houses and businesses, but also to property like boats and RVs and cars. So, so we've already got a crisis going on in Florida well before this hurricane even even started spinning. Um, and then you you combine with it. This you know direct hit from a Category Four hurricane in the state of Florida that pretty much went through the Orlando and Kissimmee area, you know came out around Daytona or uh, maybe just south in the northern part of the Space Coast came out you know you know went to sea out there and created more damage as it went up the Florida coast. So you've you've got a really rough situation for for boaters who have lost their boats and they won't be able to replace them for years. Now some people. You know, some boat owners, you know, got bigger problems right now. They got they're worried about rebuilding their houses or rebuilding uh, their lives and their businesses. Uh, so really, you know, boating is going to take a back seat to all that for maybe two years. But uh, but when it gets up and running again, we're still going to have this uh, this high demand and short supply for for boats that are that are popular among Floridians. Yeah, you mentioned the insurance. I mean, home insurers were already uh, leaving the state in droves. And, you know, now you have this problem where the the boating insurance is probably going to be, you know, getting a little bit out of hand and, you know, probably be paying, who knows, double for for anyone that even stays right now. But, you know, also you mentioned the the supply chain. You know, October usually kicks off the boat show season. You've got normally the the 63rd annual Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show. That's at the end of the month. And then you get the big Miami boat show that starts off next year. How do you expect the the big boat shows like that to be impacted? You know, um, there's going to be an impact, but it's it's funny. The manufacturers 
and dealers that are putting on their, you know, the, they're they're putting their best face on, their best foot forward. Uh, I've I've been getting uh, a lot of media requests for different products that are going to be at the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show. Of course, the several years ago you had a situation where, um, you know, where Irma. Irma's effects kind of uh, had some damage in the Fort Pierce area, it was, or in the Fort Lauderdale area. That was five years ago, uh, so they were worried about even just having putting the show on at all. And then Wilma in 2005 also created some havoc, so they had to they had to move the show then. But they they have no problems this year, so the the site itself is going to be loaded up with boats. But uh, manufacturers are sending me emails saying, come see our new model. And, you know, they're rolling out these new models. Um, and they're, they're still trying to get customers excited about the prospect of, of boat ownership and getting into the, into the boating lifestyle. And that's, that's what these boat shows are going to focus on is that, Hey, there's, there's going to be creative ways to get out there. When, when, you know, when I talk to dealers, it's a different story They're They'll kind of tell me on the phone, they'll say, you know, Hey, uh, we're pretty low on inventory and, and it's hard to tell a customer to wait, you know, nine months for a boat, but, um, but they're still going to do their job and try to try to put people into boats that they can, that they do have available. So there's, there's a, uh, it's going to be a weird market. You know, the, the boat shows are going to be trying to sell mostly new boats. Of course, you're always going to have used boats at some of these and broker broker boats, but, um, but the inventory on those boats is also low. And so prices are at all time high and dealers love that part of it. But, uh, but yeah, they're going to be struggling to meet demand. So it'll be interesting to see how the customer, you know, consumer uh, response to that is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing you mentioned was the shrimp boats and everything where, where those were impacted and the seafood industry. Now, obviously in Florida, you do get a lot of seafood that does come from other regions, but we also have such a huge business here uh, fishing around the Florida waters. So how do you expect the state seafood industry to be affected? And, you know, should we expect to see prices go up in some of our favorite menu items? So that that was that was a harder story to work on. The story's out there on the USA Today Network sites uh, right now, or, or it's, it was made available to them. I'm not sure which ones it's on, but uh, look around for for that story about seafood prices. Um, it was interesting. Hurricane Ian made landfall just prior to when the uh, stone crab season for stone crabbers that are allowed to put their pots uh, in the water. So there's this, it's kind of a weird thing. So what they, what they're allowed to do is crabbers are allowed to put stone crab pots in the water on October 5th, and then they're start, they're allowed to start pulling them on October 15th. So that was Saturday. So hopefully stone crabs are coming to the dock in places where there is a dock, uh, over there in Lee County and places like Pine Island and, uh, Fort Myers beach. And, and some of those, you know, Pine Island's a big commercial fishing community, uh, they don't have power yet. They don't have, uh, they have not been able to clean out some of the structures they have. They've had some of those uh, fish houses had, you know, five feet of water in them. So there's a, they're, they're struggling to, to keep up. So it's, it's kind of unclear as to what the crabbers are going to do over there. But, and yeah, in the keys, they, they weren't really that affected because all their stone crabs were still on land. Their stone crab pots were all still on land when the storm hit. Now, the Keys are undoubtedly the number one 
you know, county in Florida. It's Monroe County. They're number one county in Florida for the harvest of stone crabs. They they sell about seven million dollars a year in just stone crab claws. Um, stone crabs are kind of interesting because for if for people that don't know, um, you know, you get the nice big meaty claws, but they're taken off the crab. The crab is released alive back into the water. So it's a renewable resource. The crab will regenerate his claws and maybe one day it will get, be caught again. But, um, the claws are the only things that are kept. The rest of the crab is thrown back. It's very different with blue crabs, blue crabs, you know, you take the whole crab. Um, and then of course, you know, out, outside of Florida, you've got different ways of harvesting crabs, but in Florida, blue crabs are a big business, but stone crabs are very, very big business. And here's another thing that Tim, maybe some of the listeners don't aren't aware of. Stone crabs can be caught and are caught commercially in every county that's near the salt water in Florida. So we've we've literally got crabbing going on uh, for stone crabs all the way from Escambia County all the way around the point to up to Duval County, Nassau County. So uh, it's a it's a statewide venture for sure. But you know. Probably more than 60% of the whole total harvest is coming out of Monroe County. Second on that list is Collier County, and and Lee County isn't far behind. So those counties that are down there that got hit by Ian, those those crabbers are are still trying to figure out ways to you know do I have a boat? You know some of them do, some of them don't. Do I have a place to unload? No, they don't. They don't have they don't have places where they can unload their catch. So they're they're working out logistics and they're going to be behind on the season for sure, uh, which could result in less, uh, you know, more demand for fewer claws, which could result in higher prices. So if you see higher prices at your local seafood market, that's probably the reason why. Um, some of the suppliers were couldn't give me a firm answer on whether or not they were going to see higher prices. Some of them didn't think they were. Um, some of them, some of them may, but, um, but it kind of depends. So it depends a lot on where your stone crab is coming from. I know I talked to, uh, some guys at seafood Atlantic up there in, um, in Port Canaveral, their commercial fish house and seafood market up there. And they, they said, we get all their stone crabs locally sourced. So a lot of their stone crabs are coming out of that, uh, Indian river lagoon area. And, um, that supplier was not affected by hurricane Ian. So he'll, he'll have stone crab claws ready to go at seafood Atlantic there. Um, the, um, the other fish fisheries that are going to be affected are anything coming out of Southwest Florida that had to do with grouper. Uh, there's a lot of commercial grouper fishing, some snapper fishing down there. Uh, so some of those are locally caught fish from, uh, from reefs, uh, just offshore of, uh, Lee County. So some of those fishers are out of business right now because their boats are smashed and their their fish houses are wrecked. So it's going to take them a while to get up and running again. Um, the spiny lobster fishery uh, in the Keys was really affected. Now, spiny lobster can be caught up up both coasts on the Gulf Coast, up around up to about Hillsborough County. Some are caught off of uh, the Panhandle areas, um, and then. Um, up to about, you know, Canaveral is about where we see the diving Canaveral and, you know, down, down south. But we don't have any commercial fishing going on for spiny lobsters, really, unless it's Miami-Dade and Monroe County is pretty much the only places we have commercial fishing going on. Hurricane Ian's waves and storm surge affected those lower keys spiny lobster fishermen because they had traps already in the water uh, since August. 
So a lot of their traps got, uh, the floats were torn off, uh, traps were blown away, some were damaged. Some of the lobster fishermen down there are saying that they lost as many as, you know, 600 of their 800 traps are gone. So um, they've, they've got a, another kind of a problem going on down there. And, you know, in Florida, most of the spiny lobster fishery, a lot of those fish are sent to places like China. Uh, where they they really buy them a lot, but uh, but some of them trickle up through the peninsula to different markets and seafood houses and restaurants. So if you see a higher price on your lobster, uh, your lobster dinner that you have with your, I mean Tim, you're you're like a filet mignon with a lobster tail on the side kind of guy, aren't you? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, expect that to be about eighty-five dollars next time you go to go to dinner. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll ask Annette to give me a little bit of a raise, you know, there to you keep go. up with the prices of my high-priced dinners. They're going to have to raise your per diem. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll so we'll see how these these seafood and fisheries are affected. Uh, hopefully not too long. And my biggest thing is when I'm doing these stories uh, about hurricane affected people is I, I really am worried about the fishermen and I'm worried about the people. And uh, I know the governor just made an announcement that, that they're going to offer some uh, federal assistance for some of these commercial fishers that are, that are really been impacted in Lee County, especially. Um, so hopefully that'll be something that'll be able to help them a little bit. But as we know, with anything at the federal or state level, when you're trying to get, you know, handouts or, you know, compensated for damages, we know that's a, you know, that's a headache that a lot of us don't want to have to go through. And so I, I feel for those people having to deal with that from now on. But um, but that's what they got to deal with. Yeah. Southwest Florida is going to be recovering for that more than years. I, you know, that that's a decades and decades rebuild. It's going to take a lo- yeah, long time. Yeah. And, and they've got to figure out what they can do about storm surge. Cause like you said, 10 to 15 feet above what it normally is. That's the ocean coming back to claim its land. And I don't know what can stop that from happening. So just our, our hearts and prayers go out to those people. And Ed, we appreciate all the reporting that you've been doing for that. Right. Thanks. All right. So now in, in a little bit, we're going to get to the Pompano run, but I think it's time for us to get to what everybody's been listening for, Ed. And we've got to talk about where the state of Florida fell in the lawnlove.com rankings, because last year, Florida was number five on the list, and it just seemed like a ripoff. In fact, Ed, to this point, it's still the most downloaded podcast that we've done, and you are the episode 85 that we are taping right now. So let's see if we can get this out there and beat last year's Yeah, let's do that. All right. So Florida was behind last year. It was uh, number one was Alaska. Number two was Michigan. Number three was Maine. Number four was Rhode Island. And then Florida was five. Rhode Island. (laughs) <laughs> so so this year before we get to the top five i'll give you the bottom five ed because they'd go one to 51 they also count the district of columbia so number 46 is connecticut number 47 is utah number 48 is arizona number 49 or i'm sorry number 50 is nevada i can't count ed number 50 is nevada and number 51 is the district of columbia so connecticut utah arizona nevada and district of columbia are your bottom five which i think three of those places are either desert or very land do they even have water in some i mean some, i mean i know in arizona and nevada they don't even have water <laughs> don't know where water to fish in yeah man i guess the great salt lake isn't something anybody's going to if utah's at the bottom no i guess not 
All right, so now it's time for the top five. And again, lawnlove.com uses 22 different metrics, and I laid out some of those in the intro to the podcast. But if you want to learn more, again, go to lawnlove.com. So here we go, Ed. Florida, again, last year was number five. This year, at number five, Texas breaks into the top five. What do you think of Texas as a top five, considering the amount of Gulf uh, coasts that they have? Well, I tell you that I'm I'm kind of surprised that they're that they're fifth, but because it's such a big state uh, compared to how much coastline they have. Now they do have a lot of coastline, uh, but they but you know that's and that's what I think of first because I'm a saltwater fisherman first and foremost, and I I almost ignore our, our fantastic bass fishing we have in Florida, but Texas does have a ton of fresh water and a ton of great lakes and. Um, um, I say that I'm not saying the Great Lakes are near Texas. I'm saying that uh, they have they have wonderful lakes to fish in. They also have some you know lots of uh, man-made reservoirs that have been stocked with uh, fish. So um, I'm it's I'm glad to see them as that high. I know that their their trout and redfish population is great. I know that down by uh, South Padre Island near Corpus Christi area, uh, down near the near the Mexican border, their snook fishery has really come on strong in the last couple of years. And uh, tarpon too, and I, I talked to a guy uh, that was down there. I interviewed him for a story back during the when Texas had its bad freeze, and they lost some of their uh, some of their fish. Um, I talked to a guy down there, and he thought things were were still pretty good. And and I've seen his Facebook page since then. He's got you know 180 pound tarpon catches. He's got these big big snookies landing for customers. So it's almost like fishing in Florida if you go down there to South Texas. Uh, yeah. But up around, yeah, up around Houston, Galveston, and the eastern part of the state, I know there's a a lot of trout fishing, a lot of great trout fishing, a lot of um, good redfish there in the in those bays. So, uh, so it's good. I'm glad to see them on the fifth on the list. It's a good place to look good, good place for them to be. All right. Before I throw out number four again, some of the uh, metrics that they used are community interest, access to gear and bait shops, license affordability, proximity to water sources among other things. So now it's time for number four. And again, new to the top five this year, it is Minnesota, one of the Great Lakes up there. Minnesota. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, you know, so we all we all know the famous uh, uh, slogan that they used to put on their license plates, land of 10,000 lakes. Um, this is a little a side thing you probably aren't aware of, Tim, but um, Florida has more lakes than Minnesota. So just to let you know, just, and I'm talking about freshwater lakes, Florida has more lakes and, and mostly because of its springs, but in Florida, there's more than, than there are in Minnesota. However, um, I, I think that's a good place for Minnesota. Minnesota, uh, everybody I know that is, that goes there, I, I talked to a regular uh, reader of mine and he, uh, he, he uh, hunts ducks up there. He hunts geese up there. Um, and he's on the lakes all the time up there, uh, and he's from that area. And he he just talks about how great the fishing is there. I guess they got walleye, pike, you know, some, some uh, smallmouth bass, I think it is. So he's always up there fishing and and hunting. He goes up there during the summer and fall to do some of the uh, waterfowl hunting they have up there. And uh, so I'm not surprised to to see them that high. And and I know that they're very good. They're Fish and game department is very good uh, with their licensing and all that. So I think that I think that's a good thing too. And I know that Minnesota is also well known for just just how it caters to the outdoors lovers. So I know that there's lots of 
lots of uh, retail places up there for people to 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 get involved with the outdoors, and that's a good thing too. All righty. Well, number three, this one's the one that surprised me most in the top five, and we still haven't heard Florida's name, by the way. Well, yeah, we better, number Florida better be number one. That's all I could say. <laughs> well, at number three, Montana. Montana. Wow. <laughs> Okay, well, all right. Cutthroat trout, rainbow trout. I mean, you know, some of those streams, uh, what are those? They also catch, uh, there's another fish they catch in those, those boats. Those, I guess they call them, what do they call those boats? Swift boats or something. They're like rowboats and they go down the, uh, the rushing rivers and they catch fish doing that. Um, I could, I could kind of see that, you know, this is just more of like an, uh, like a, more of like a lean towards just great outdoors experiences i think with this the top five on this list because montana's a place i've never been and i always wanted to go um and i'd love to see the mountains there and i'd love to do some fishing when i get up there i know that they've got a lot of great fly fishing a lot of uh uh, small towns with uh really well-known uh fishing guides that work in these uh, little small towns to teach people fly fishing uh, I guess they shot that river runs through it was a shot up there. And that's like, you know, the, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the one movie of the fly fishing industry that really stands out. Um, so, okay. Good, good for Montana. It's good to hear. I, I guess you, you want to fish in an area where there's, you know, some, you know, rams or mountain goats around, I guess that's a good place to fish. You know, the fact that you know that much about Montana is just incredible. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I, I pay attention to some of these outdoors things, so, you know. <laughs> well, and this is this also surprised me. Montana being one of the land-wise, land-wise, one of the biggest states in the country, it's actually the number 44 most populated state, so it doesn't have a large population. But one of the things that did land it in that top five was, and this is a great stat, this, this should be the stat of the day, nearly half of Montana's population aged 16 plus are licensed anglers. So that, that, that's a decent amount of people. That's great. Yeah, good for them. Well, that's good. I, I like the fact that it's such a large state and with, with 44th in population. That's a that's always a good thing because that's not Florida. Florida's the other way around. <laughs> well, yeah, but it gets so cold in Montana, I will take Florida yeah, any day. I, I'm with you there. All righty. So let's get to number two here on the list. Could Florida be in the top two? Well, the number one state from last year, Alaska, has fallen to number two. So oh. number two is Alaska, Ed. Oh, wow. Imagine that. Now, it was kind of funny. I just had uh, I had dinner the other night with a friend of mine who's been living in Alaska for 40 years. And, you know, she has nothing but great things to say about Alaska. And we're talking about the fishing. And, you know, one thing I know about Alaska is I, I know a lot of people from Florida who go up there for you know, one season or another, they'll go up there for, uh, you know, king salmon season or um, they'll go up there for that uh, sockeye salmon and they'll they'll ship their salmon home after they catch it. Uh, so I've had some fresh salmon, friends of mine and my uncle was caught up there. But um, but they I know that Alaska highly, highly regulates its fisheries. So I know that, like, you know, you have to get a you know, an Alaska fishing permit. If you go up there at all, you also have to, you have to sign up. Like if you're going to go catch halibut or rock bash, you got to sign up for those. If you're catching, you know, any of the three or four salmon that they, that they have runs, like I think they have a Chinook salmon or salmon, silver salmon, but they've got the King salmon. I know is very popular. 
Uh, and these fish can be like 30 pounds or so. I mean, these are, these are, you know, quality fish. You're not going up there to catch some little, you know, dinky fish like you catch in Montana and let it go. You know, up there you're catching fish you can take home with you. Um, so, um, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. I know that they had a problem with their, uh, crab season. Like we was made popular by the show deadliest catch. I know they recently had a crab problem going on up there and, uh, offshore, but, uh, those aren't really recreational fisheries. Those are for commercial, you know, fishing on those, those big boats. Um, but the, the, the stuff for recreational fishermen go up, there's lots of great rivers and fjords and, you know, lots of places where the salmon will make their annual runs to come up and spawn. So, um, so it's somewhere I, I dream of going one of these days. I, I think my, my, my girlfriend and I are going to plan on going up there next summer if we can, or maybe the year after that. And we're going to try to go up there and uh, experience Alaska at its best. And fishing is going to be one of those things that I do when I go up there. Well, there you go. I love me a good fjord, I got to tell you. <laughs> right. All right. right. Now, we've got three new states that you've heard in the top five this year. And that's, again, Texas, Minnesota, and Montana. And Alaska was in there last year. The number one spot is held by one of the states that was in the top five last year. So if you were to choose between Rhode Island, Maine, Michigan, and Florida, which do you think came in at number one this year? Florida better be in there. Uh, I'm a homer. That's all there is to it. And you could take Rhode Island. You can stick it in the Everglades. I mean, that's it'll <laughs> fit inside the Everglades completely. Um, I I hope Florida's the number one number one there. All right. Well, first of all, I'm going to start using that to say to people, ah, you could take it and stick it in the Everglades. You could stick it in the Everglades. <laughs> All right, Ed, you are correct. Florida has regained the seat as the number one fishing state All in right. the United States. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, you know, and I, okay, so I'm a homer and, you know, born and raised in Florida, you know, three generations, you know, uh, of my family have been here and I've raised my fourth generation here. Um, we just love fishing. We've, we've lived here in the treasure coast of Florida for a long time. I lived over in Tampa and Bradenton, places like that. And I used to fish when I went over there. Uh, I fish over, you know, we've caught dozens of species of fish over here. And that's why Florida should be number one. You literally have access to dozens of species. You've, you know, which is more than you could say about any other state where you can fish. In Florida, you've got this uh, one combination. This is a, something that scientist uh, Grant Gilmore used to explain to me. And he's still around, by the way. So I'm not, I'm not saying that in the past tense like he's gone. I'm just saying that this is what he used to told me like 20 years ago. But um, we live, Florida is the separation of the tropics and the subtropics. So snook are like a tropical species. You can catch them from the Keys and Key West all the way up through the Florida Peninsula. And now with, with you know, call it climate, climate change, call it global warming, you can catch snook as far north as cedar key uh and even the swanee river and mouth of swanee river they're catching snook now uh, on the west on the gulf coast and on the on the atlantic coast you can catch them sometimes up as far as jacksonville and the st john's river believe it or not so you know the tropical species are pushing farther north on the peninsula but it's also where the mid-atlantic species can be caught so we have a species of flounder we also have um uh, other species of fish like red snapper and some other species where you can only catch them from the in like the mid-atlantic states like from north carolina 
south all the way down to about Sebastian. So it makes this crossover for certain species of snapper, certain species of of inshore fish, certain freshwater species, where you can kind of catch both both the subtropical species and the and the mid Atlantic, the temperate. I'm sorry, the temperate is the word I'm looking for. Temperate species that come down as far south, like striped bass, things like that. You can catch striped bass as far you know south as maybe you know Daytona or Jacksonville. Every once in a while, we'll see one farther south than that. So Florida should be number one. We've got 7,000 springs. We have thousands of miles of freshwater rivers. Uh, surface, we have thousands and thousands, more than Minnesota, in surface lakes. And then we've got about 2,300 miles of tidal coastline to go with that, as well as access to deep water fishing. So we've got we've got it all in Florida. That's all there is to say about it. We can catch everything from a from a tuna to a big mouth sleeper, and we can catch everything from peacock bass to you know to striped bass. So we've got it all all in Florida, and we should be number one. Plus, getting licenses and you know tackle shops and all that stuff that they use as their metrics for rating this. Florida should be way number one all the time. So. Good, good for the good for this rating system. I, I I approve of it highly. Absolutely, and you know, if you're wondering to show that there is a little inaccuracy in these, the number four Rhode Island from last year, it fell all the way to number twenty-seven. So maybe they did stick it in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's stuck in the Everglades. They they put Delaware and Rhode Island down in the Big Cypress and the Everglades. They stuck it down there. All right. Well, Ed, before I let you go, I, I did mention that the Pompano Run is coming. They're moving up the shores. Where should people be looking for good spots to catch the Pompano as they're heading up north? Okay, so I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this in the fall they, the Pompano migrate south, and in the spring they migrate north. So right now, this is a we're taping this in the fall, and this is a great time to catch Pompano as they make their migration. So I was out yesterday. And we were fishing, we were surf fishing on uh, in Martin, in a beach in Martin County, and uh, we caught two short pompano, and then we caught two larger pompano, and then we caught a permit about it weighed about 15 pounds. So it was uh, we got the whole gamut there. But we also caught a bunch of whiting. Some of them went back because they're too small. Some of them went in the cooler, so they're going to become uh, whiting whiting rubens later on uh, this week. Um, and uh, we caught also a couple of uh, jack valves, which we, we turned loose. So the bait run is about over um, from Jupiter north. Uh, there's some straggler schools of mullet that are still pushing to the south. But when you see those, when you get to that part of the middle part of October, you know, whatever the moon phase is, like we just got past the full moon, I think. So those pompano start coming. And when we'll get, if we get a couple cold fronts, some of the migratory species that we catch in South Florida in the wintertime, pompano, sailfish, dolphin, things like that, tuna, um, they are migrating from north to south in their respective areas. But the pompano are coming right down the beach. Uh, some of them will come in the inlets and go down the lagoon. So some of our causeways are a good place to catch them. Places like um, uh, South Causeway and Fort Pierce, uh, Jensen Beach Causeway, Stewart Causeway, um, some of the causeways when you get down to uh, into Palm Beach County or like that, um, those are good places to fish for pompano. And you use a small jig, about a one eighth ounce jig or one quarter ounce jig, 
usually chartreuse and white is a good color or just chartreuse or just pink. Uh, those are good colors to use. You want to work the jigs. If you're going to jig from a bridge or a causeway, you want to work the jigs in that bottom. Uh, oh, Wabasso Causeway. That's another great place to go fishing for Pompano. Um, on that low bridge on the west end of the causeway is a great place to fish for them. Um, but does it, but you want to use these jigs, you want to work the bottom 12 inches of the water column because that's pompano feed, but they're, they're feeding on small crabs and crustaceans on the bottom. So they've got their mouths, their mouths are underslung on the bottom side of their chin and their eyeballs are kind of big, but they're, but they angle their, the fish angles itself, uh, forward facing down as it swims. So it's looking for little stuff that can pick up along the way. And as most people know who have caught Pompano, Pompano are not slow swimmers. They swim fast. So you're going to want to work that jigs on the, on the bottom there. Or if you're going to still fish or surf fish, use your, your double hook chicken rig, you know, just two hooks on dropper loops. You want to use a pyramid sinker or a Sputnik sinker, something that's strong enough to hold bottom depending on what your waves are. It doesn't have to be flat, flat calm out there. You want a little bit of wave action. Sometimes the light east wind is nice because you've got a little bit of chop on the on the surface of the, of the water. Um, incoming tide is usually better. That cleaner water as it pushes into the beach and into the trough is the best time. And you want to make your casts out to that sandbar that runs parallel to the beach. It's usually about 150 feet off the beach. And it's just where the sand gets piled up during the tides. And uh, sometimes those pompano, as the, as the tide comes up, the pompano will come over onto the west side. If you're fishing the Atlantic coast, it comes on the west side of that. You can also catch pompano on the Gulf Coast, but it's a little different program. Sometimes fiddler crabs work better. Sometimes like, you know, barnacles or if you can scrape barnacles to chum up the water a little bit and then use fiddler crabs or sand fleas if you can. Uh, that's a better way to catch them. But on the east coast, there's been a, a scarcity of sand fleas for two years now. So you're going to have to use uh, artificial like fish bites, which is a little little cloth strip, and you put it on your on your small hooks, and just cast it out there, and you should have a good time catching pompano, whiting, croaker, jacks, things like that. Once in a while, you might get a bluefish cut you off. Uh, there's bluefish and Spanish mackerel are also migrating, so you're going to catch some of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a good time to to fish out there this time of year, Tim. And uh, from now for the next four or five months, you've got got pretty good bumpano fishing on days where you're allowed to you know in days that aren't too weather let allows you to fish uh you can get out there on the especially the east coast of florida anywhere from new smyrna beach all the way down to juno beach is a great place to catch them i know that for a fact well absolutely it's just one of the things that makes florida the number one fishing state in the united states Ed, it's been great talking to you. People can find all your work at tcpalm.com and around the USA Today Florida network of news sites. And you can also be found where on Twitter, Ed? Uh, you can find me at um, tcpalmekiller on Twitter or Instagram. And then you can find me also on Facebook at just edkiller. Um, and uh, yeah, we, usually those are work-related content sometimes twitter i might put in my baseball feelings or my football feelings <laughs> so they'll be on there too but <laughs> that's all right we we love it when you share your feelings ed yeah <laughs> share feelings like who like i absolutely had the padres and phillies in this year's national league championship series i picked that back in april <laughs> well i hope you put money on it <laughs>
I know I'd be rich man right now. <laughs> yeah, you would. All right. Well, Ed, I appreciate it again. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you real soon. All right. Talk to you later, Tim. All right. And that's going to do it for this episode of the state of Florida sports podcast. I'm Tim Walters and to quote legendary WWE wrestling manager, Bobby, the brain Heenan. Remember folks, fish are like relatives after two days. They stink. Okay. I can do better than that. I'll quote noted ecologist and author Carl Safina. Fishing provides time to think and reason not to. That's a little bit nicer. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.